0: Today's reading will come from the Song of Solomon 4. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins and not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of pomegranates behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, myrrh and aloes, with all choice spices. A garden fountain, a well of living water, and flowing streams from Lebanon. Awake, O North Wind, and come. O south wind, blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruit. This is God's word. Family, will you pray? Join me in praying for our brother, our elder, Nate, as he comes forward to preach God's word. Lord, we thank you for what Nate has been to this community. As I pastor now, I'm thankful for his leadership on our elder team. Would you free him up to be used by you to preach your word, that we might understand more what you desire of us, but in a greater fashion, understand the beauty of who you are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. (laughs) It's
1: quite a passage. Um, Welcome to MacAve Church. Um, If you're new here, or if you don't recognize me in a tie, my name's Nate. Um, I've um, served at Mac for a while now. Sorry, it's a little emotional. (laughs) Gotta get one good cry during a sermon. (laughs) All right, hopefully that's the last one. Um, Yeah, it's an honor to preach at the last service that Eric's going to be at. Um, He was the one that kind of pushed me into public speaking, (laughs) the results of which you can judge for yourself. But uh (laughs) Um, today um, we're talking about sexuality and marriage and human flourishing. Uh, Leon tells me that this is the number one most uncomfortable topic for a congregation to hear. (laughs) so this should be fun. It's probably equally uncomfortable from this side. Um, But it's good. Um, And I think passages like the Song of Solomon, the reason I chose that was because it is in your face and because it's in Scripture and because it's important. Um, God wants you to know that sex is good and that it should be celebrated in its proper context. Uh, Much of what I have to say today is drawn from a book by a guy named Glenn Harrison. Uh, He's an English Professor um, wrote a book called *The Better Story: uh, God, Sex, and Human Flourishing*, and it's a—I mean, he's a professor. It's a pretty academic book, but I think it does a good job of kind of walking through how we got to our current state of culture and how we view marriage and um, how we view sexuality in general. Um, I hope today is to kind of paint in very broad strokes. Um, the same picture that he painted, um, give you some context for where we are as a culture and how we can recover uh, God's story, recover our prophetic voice in this time. Uh, before I get started, I'd like to pray as well. Lord God, we are humbled by your goodness. Lord, the songs that the worship team let us in are just a great reminder of how good you are and how perfect you are in all of your ways. Lord, I just pray that we would be able to fix our eyes on that reality, Lord, and, and let the rest kind of fall into place after that. At the same time, Lord, we confess that we are also ungrateful, impatient, and discontent. Lord, like Adam and Eve, we are too easily seduced by cheap imitations We too easily doubt your goodness. We miss the orchard for the tree. I confess, Lord, that my own heart and eyes are prone to wander. So, Lord God, would you increase my appetite for you today and in the days to come, Lord? Would you increase all of our appetite for you? Would you give us just an abiding sense of your goodness, Lord, one that can counter the messages that we hear from the world around us. Amen. Um, So, if we can go to the Genesis one. Um, Genesis starts out describing the creation of the world. And in verse 27 of chapter 1, it says, "...so God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them." And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the ground. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every f- fruit tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Um, sorry. Oh. All right. All um, right. So this, the reason I bring up this passage, and you can go on to the next slide, is it's the beginning of kind of the narrative in scripture of human sexuality. Um, it goes on to describe, uh, we can go one more. That's the main point, by the way. Um, but, uh, so the biblical narrative starts here in Genesis and describes humans, so everything else has been created. By the time you get to verse 27, and then humans are created, and God sets them to rule over everything else. He puts them in a place of particular importance, a particular value and worth. Um, They are made in his image. That's one unique quality, and they're made to rule. Um, From there, the fall quickly happens, and that perfect um, image of sexuality is marred. and Leon talked about this two sermons ago, but kind of this conflict that's set up between man and woman um, that distorts that perfect, um, perfect relationship that God created. Then we move on to the law, the law of Moses. And you see lots of commands, some of which are moral-based, some of which are more ceremonial-based. And the law was meant to set Israel apart from the nations around it. We know from how Jesus talks about, particularly the law of divorce, that it wasn't a perfect law. It was meant simply to take a step forward. Um, Jesus talks about Moses making a concession because the Israelites were weak. And so he put in some, um, some laws that were more or less concessions. Um, And from there, we move on to the wisdom literature, which are like Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, which we just read from. Um, Those take a much more uh, explicit tone towards sexuality and a much more kind of praise or glorifying tone to it. Um, It reminds us that sex is great. It's not just good, it's great. Um, And that you should enjoy it within marriage. Um, that you should not seek it in other places outside of marriage. Um, From next, kind of, this is just kind of a march through scripture, kind of in order of how things appear, but the prophets, um, so like Isaiah, Jeremiah, um, the minor prophets as well, talk about God's relationship with Israel as a marriage. And they use those terms, and so times are even more explicit than Song of Solomon. Um, and how they talk about it. Because it's powerful language. Sex is probably one of the m- most powerful things we can experience in this world. Um, and, and God wants you to know how intense his feelings are for you as his people. So he uses that language. Um, and at the same time, you know, from the other direction, he provided marriage so you could understand that relationship. Um, and that ultimate marriage at the end of time when, you know, the second coming happens, you know, we will all be united with God in this eternal marriage. Um, And so the the prophets begin to point to that. When we get to the Gospels and Epistles in the New Testament, we see Jesus himself reaffirming, speaking specifically to Genesis 2.24, which talks about a man leaving his wife, or leaving his father and mother and being united to his wife. Um... And so he reaffirms this creation narrative of one man, one woman, sharing one mortal life together. And then in the epistles, particularly passages like Ephesians 5, which Leon touched on last week, we start to understand some of the roles and how the, the different roles in marriage help us, again, get a better glimpse of God. Um, in Revelation, Revelation is another prophetic um, book. So it has very similar language to the Old Testament prophets. And it again talks about the preparation and the consummation of this ultimate marriage. So that is God's story of sexuality in very brief tones. Um, That is drawn from a book that Leon and I read by Ray Ortland, which neither of us know the name of, but I think it's called Marriage and the Mystery of the Gospel. My wife knows the name of it. Um, So so that's, I think, a great book for just getting a very quick overview of how how marriage is portrayed in Scripture. Um, and when Leah and I were setting up this series, it was, Leon was going to do Old Testament, New Testament, and then I was going to do Marriage Today. And that was just looking at the outline, and my passage is only like six pages long. So I had to get another book. <laughs> um, but... So this is this is God's story. This is kind of the story that we've be, been retelling as a church universal for two thousand years now. Um, but that is not the only story. Um, the same way that Satan um, talked to Eve and Adam in the Garden of Eden, we are constantly hearing whispers of God, Does God really know best? Um, does He really want your good? Um, Is he your best option for pleasure in this life? Uh, The book by Glenn Harrison has this passage that I'm just going to read verbatim, um, but it offers kind of a a brief synopsis of the story that we kind of hear today. Um, For centuries, traditional morality had us, all of us in its suffocating grip. Year after year, the same old rules, chained to the past, heaped shame on ordinary men and women, and boys and girls, whose only crime was being different. Enemies of the human spirit, these bankrupt ideologies, befriended bigots and encouraged the spiteful. They nurtured a seedbed of hypocrisy and offered safe havens to perpetrators of abuse. No more. Change is here. We are breaking free from the shackles of bigotry and removing ourselves from under the dead hand of tradition. Our time has come, a time to be ourselves, a time to be truly who we are, a time to celebrate love wherever we find it, a time for the human spirit to flourish once again. And if you people won't move out of our way, we are going to push you out of our way. That is more or less the anthem of what has been termed the sexual revolution which started back in the 60s and 70s with decisions like Roe v. Wade and has snowballed into legalization of same-sex marriages and, in more recent years, the concept of gender fluidity and just kind of where does does gender come from. Um, Now, it's a pretty compelling story in a lot of ways. Um, It has this kind of epic narrative. this heroic individualism where you get to be the hero. You get to look within yourself, decide who you are, and throw off everything that hinders it, um, including the church. And part of that is this kind of expression of your sexuality. Like, you no longer have to answer to these... um, Arbitrary constructs that the world has put on you. Um, you can be who you want to be, and that in itself is a moral achievement. It's a, a good unto itself. Um, and the moral vision of our culture um, today, which it does have a moral vision, um, is slanted um, towards the individual side of the spectrum. Like morality has both individual and uh, more like group concerns. Um, or community concerns. The church, in a lot of ways, has community concerns, like the good of the whole is in mind. Whereas the the sexual revolution and just the cultural revolution in general has the good of the individual in mind. So ideas like equality, caring, um, you know, removing of this kind of bigotry. Um, those are very much the concerns of the the vision today. And it offers open arms to those who have been abused by the church and marginalized by the church. I hope you realize this, but the church has been caught off guard by this. Um, we did not expect someone to, one, call us out on our sin, and two, take the moral upper hand. I mean, in general, we probably tend towards the self-righteous end of the spectrum. And so it's hard for us to imagine that someone might have a morality that, the, that is better than ours in some respects. Um, and in this kind of staggering of the church, you know, we've lost kind of our our sense of, you know, our direction. We've lost our anchor. Um, but this has also been a good thing. You know, it, it reminds me of the, when, actually I think both Abraham and Isaac made this mistake, but they both go down to Egypt. They are afraid for their lives and they portray their wife as their sister. The Egyptian Pharaoh takes their, you know, their wife as his own and eventually comes to figure out that it's, you know, that it is Abraham and Isaac's wives respectively. And then calls them out, calls these patriarchs out of the the faith on their sin. And these are pagans, like calling out sins that aren't even allowed in pagan culture. Um, and we've experienced the same, kind of, the same kind of prophetic voice from the world back to us, and we need to own that. Um, but we also need to realize that we still have the word of life. We still have the Bible. And we, although our grounds for speaking prophetically have certainly been shaken, they're not gone. Um, unfortunately, our response to this um, kind of being caught off guard has not been to recover god 's story at least as a church in general, um, but instead we 've adapted it to kind of to suit the culture around us, to suit a culture that is chasing after itself. Truths that have been held for almost two thousand years were out the window in the matter of a couple of decades. Um, and some of that has been brought on by increasing exposure to the LGBT community, and there's like several ways. There's several more acronyms for some people, but I'm going to stick with that for now. Um, and it's not only exposure in the media. I mean, pretty much every romantic comedy you see these days will have at least a side couple that is, you know, homosexual or gay, um, and so we're we're seeing it all the time. Um, and, but we're also seeing it, you know, in our regular lives, our you know our coworkers, um, you know, ourselves, our our family, our friends. Like, it has become much more of a normative thing than it was in the past. You know, a lot of a lot of the what the church did to separate itself from from homosexuality and was was more or less based in prejudice. It was cast as a strange kind of otherworldly thing. Um, you know, akin to some like pagan cultures of like sacrificing or whatever. Um, but it was it was seen as so otherly that when we found out, you know, the friend who we really respected, you know, was gay. Like it it rocked that bigotry for the church, and it kind of leapfrogged it and got in got into the emotional um, side of our our experience. Um, because of that, uh, because of this normalization, you know, f- folks folks wanted it to be okay. Like, what is wrong with this person next to me? They're not hurting anyone. They're someone I respect. They're wise. They're caring. You know, they have many of the fruits of the Spirit, as far as I can tell. So what does God really say? Let me look at Scripture again. Maybe, maybe we didn't get it right the first time. Um, did God really say, you know, it was always a sin for men to have sex with men or women to do the same? or were they speaking against more specifically this um predatory like older male versus young boy kind of sexual relationship um aren't there other prohibitions in the bible that we don't follow anymore i mean we're allowed to eat shellfish we don't really care much about what we eat anymore compared to what you know the israelite code was like why is this any different um So for many of these questions, these questions became kind of the springboard for like, well, this part of the Bible doesn't matter anymore. This part still has morality that I can agree with. We'll keep that, um, and so we kind of developed this a la carte way of looking at Christianity. And and the, and you have you know you've seen that in denomination splits. You know you've seen that in whole denominations shifting over to you know same-sex marriage approval and other things. Um, and if you aren't in the camp that has joined in the open and affirming crowd you've probably left been left feeling a little paralyzed not sure what to say because you don't you don't want to be seen as a bigot you know you post anything on like facebook or twitter with this regards and you will almost instantly get a hundred responses in the other direction, you'll probably lose friends out of it. And if you have any business behind you, you may lose that business too. Um, And so this is not, this is not something that is comfortable to come out and talk about. Um, So many of us, you know, are in that state of like, well, I'll talk about it with my friends and family if it comes up, but otherwise, you know, we'll just sit this one out. And I think that's the wrong approach. I know that's the wrong approach, even though that's in large part where I've been. So I was encouraged by this book. I hope that you know, we can start taking steps forward of kind of recovering this prophetic voice and celebrating the story. You don't have to be ashamed of what the Bible says. It is the only way to eternal life. You have that in your hands, and you can't hold that back from the world around you. before we get to talking, though, about what, you know, what we have to offer the world, I think we need to to take stock of some of the lessons that the revolution has taught us. Um, First, we we need to remember that sex is a gift. Like, we shouldn't, when passages like Song of Songs 4 gets read up front, we shouldn't feel awkward. Like, we shouldn't be, like, snickering in the back or whatever. Like, this is this is a gift of God and it's it's great and it needs to be celebrated. Um, when sex is hidden and repressed and silent in the church, sin creeps in because the only voice Christians hear is the voice of the world around them. And we've seen that. We ought not let that continue. Um, second, we need to start being open and honest. Not I don't starts the wrong word. We need to we need to increase. Our willingness to be open and honest about sins. And I think this church does a great job of that. You know, we we have a corporate confession time in the middle of church service. Like, who does that? <laughs> but, and I, th- and I think it happens in discipleship groups. I think it happens in our small groups, the MAC groups. Um, but I think, you know, as as a ch- church universal, we need to get better at recognizing, and we are getting better, um, you know, the language of Websites like the Gospel Coalition is far different than the leading evangel, evangelistic websites, you know, our books you know 20, 30 years ago. So I, the language is changing, and I think it's good. But just being honest, like, same-sex attraction is not the only issue that we face. Like fornication runs rampant, you, know, sex before marriage. You know We have so many single-parent homes in our community because of that. Um, and we, we need to think about that. And we need to, sp- we need to speak prophetically about those as well. Um, yeah, but we need to look in first. You know, there are marriages without sex. And that is a sin. That's not a sin we talk about very often. Um, but Puritans, who we actually think of as rather stiff and backwards, if they discovered that there is a marriage within their community that you know, one or the other partner was withholding sex, like, they were essentially excommunicated because of that. Which is crazy. Like, we don't think about, don't think about sin like that, do we? <laughs> they took sin a little more seriously than we do. Third, we need to come to grips with our fear, our prejudice, and disgust. Um, if the thought of anal or oral sex to you seems unnatural and makes you just say, yuck, you need to get over that. That's keeping you from being able to talk to someone who needs to hear about the gospel. Consider your own sin. Consider your own disgustingness to Christ. And in humility, reconsider your position. Um, We don't want to be like the Pharisees who Jesus warned, um, calling them whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Fourth, we need to find ways of meeting people where they are at, both physically and emotionally. Um, And by physically, I mean sometimes our daily interactions do not bring us within an arm's reach of people that have significantly different worldviews than us if they don't, we need to find ways of getting in touch with those people, because we need to understand them. Um, Not just not to argue with them, but to find points of commonality. Like, these are humans. They were, we were all created in the image of the same God. We are all broken, and, you know, there are, you know, certain things that we can affirm about what they're pursuing, Um, and hopefully they can Affirm about what we are pursuing, and and on those conversations, you can build more. Um, One of the images in the book that was used was this idea of um, a man riding an elephant, and like the elephant is like the emotional part of a person, the man is the intellectual part of the person. And when when something happens, when something gets in the elephant's way, the elephant just moves. You know, it doesn't wait for the rider to like jerk on its chain or whatever. It just moves. Um, and in a lot of ways, our emotions are that way. And you, the rider doesn't ever get a chance to think about it because the, the elephant has already reacted. And so if we don't find ways of interacting with people's emotions, as well as their intellect, which I think most of our arguments have been aimed at over the last 20, 30 years, we'll never get to actually talk to the rider. Um, you know we need to find ways of of appealing to the emotions of appealing to the same things that they care that that folks in the sexual revolution care about, and to a certain extent we care about because we're in part of this culture but um, we should care about equality we should you know not allow bigotry to continue in the church like those are those are things we can affirm and we need to do that um, at the same time you know. Our, emo- our appeal to the emotions is as you have the best thing in the world. You have the treasure hidden in a field. You have the pearl of great price. It is worth giving up everything for. We need to act like that. We need to remind the world of that. Um, Those are the lessons that I think we can learn from the revolution. I think there's some cracks in the revolution that are beginning to show and will probably have been showing for a while. Um, You know, one of the one of the great promises of the sexual revolution is that you would have more sex and better sex, um, and that's kind of the story that we see getting played out on, you know, in movies. Like, you know, you have these young, attractive people that just kind of have this endless string of, you know, hookups, which are amazing, you know, you know, erotic, varied, like, you know, that becomes our kind of ideal for sex. Um, but that's not actually what's happening in people's lives. Like, the truth is, people are having less sex than ever. And one researcher, in a you know, kind of tongue-in-cheek fashion, said that at the current rate of decline, no one will be having sex by 2040. Like, <laughs> like, yeah, it is what it is. But, But it really hasn't delivered. And part of that is because this focus on the self has this natural tendency to separate people. If your primary concern is... Filling your desires, other people kind of get in the way of that, and so you kind of separate yourself out little by little, and you become lonelier. Um, particularly as you move further in life, you know, as we, you know, if we ever had it, some of us have and some of us haven't, but this kind of magnetic appeal to other people—if you had—if you've had that, it will go away one day. You know, your looks will fade. You'll put on extra weight. You know, whatever. Like. <laughs> And when you no longer have that appeal to people, they will drop you. Because in this paradigm, it's about them as much as it is about you for you. And so instead of leading to more fulfillment, you end up lonelier. And over the you know the past couple of decades, we've seen a steady climb in the rate of suicides. And a couple recently, um, high-profile ones. Um, another kind of ironic um, twist in the revolution is this idea that you, know, you will find your true self. You will have a much firmer, more durable grip of self-identity. Um, and the problem is that when you look in yourself, um, you don't actually, you don't see yourself by itself. What you see is ingrained in yourself, you see the values of the culture around you. So, like, so when you're deciding to go to a college or you're deciding who to marry, like, the filter that you're using is the filter of the people around you, in some cases the church, in some cases the world. So a culture that looks into itself for this is only going to see the latest values of the culture itself and is going to be constantly changing with a culture. And so you have this very, I mean, people... Instead of knowing what you 're going to do at like eighteen twenty for the rest of your life, people are stretching that to thirty forty fifty um, you know you just kind of have this endless adolescence because people can't land on anything firm because the culture isn't firm um, and another point of irony in the the revolution is this you know what began is kind of this um, this crusade for the rights of victims has, in turn, become a, a victimizing um, movement. You know, the last line, you know, if you don't get out of our way, we're going to push you out, is real. Like that, that happens. You know, probably the most famous case is the, I think, the Oregon couple who you know owned a bakery and wouldn't make a make a wedding cake for a same-sex couple. Their case just went before the Supreme Court, I think within the past month, and, you know, the Supreme Court kind of punts it on it, but but they lost their livelihood, they lost friends, they lost, in many ways, their community because of that decision, um, and had their lives threatened along the way. And, like, these are the same people that are hating bigotry, um, and hating the way, you know that. That gays and lesbians um, and transsexuals have been treated. So, while keeping in mind that that you know gays and lesbians and transsexuals have been mistreated, um, and we need to own that, we also should be asking the you know the revolution to consider its own hypocrisy. Um, and the final point that I think the, the sexual revolution misses on is like the role of kids. Um, You know, one of our mandates as humans is to be fruitful and increase in number, and it kind of happens whether we want it to or not. Um, But the sexual revolution, with the legalization of abortion, with the proliferation of um, countless contraceptive methods, has offered a way to separate out sex from parenthood. And in many ways, kids have been viewed as kind of this unfortunate consequence of an otherwise fun activity. Um, You know, like, going to the movie doesn't produce kids. You know, sex shouldn't produce kids, um, is kind of how we think about sex now. And once they are born, they will bear the worst effects of, of this kind of cultural transiency, the broken relationships. Um, it has been studied over decades and um, proven, and you know, as far as correlations can be proven, that kids who come from homes that have two biologic parents do better in every aspect, on average, there are certainly exceptions to that um, and that shouldn't turn us away from adopting or um, you know other ways of supporting broken families but like that is a cl- clear message that you know data driven um, that we can you know bring to the forefront of this discussion. Um, And another way they're being hurt, well, there's a few ways, but the proliferation and kind of ubiquitous nature of pornography means that most kids are getting their sexual education from pornography um, rather than from their parents or the church or even their school. Um, And this concept of gender fluidity also is undermining a key development stage in children. Like, when you there is a, there's a concept of gender dysphoria or this kind of like wondering, am I a boy or a girl? Um, and that should be recognized, but that is a very, very, very small population. And we're kind of undermining the natural development of all kids by asking the majority to submit to the needs of the few. Um, and I think there should be ways of walking alongside those kids. There definitely should be ways. Um... But it sh- it shouldn't be something that every kid necessarily has to walk through, um, because it undermines like this sense of who I am, this kind of self identity thing again, which was a promise of the revolution, but in various ways is really, um, you know, undercut, you know, shooting its own foot. All right, um, so where do we go from here? You know, can we can we look at all of this and say, God still knows best. I still believe, you know, what. That God has a plan. Um, I think so, um, like most Christian steps or Christian processes, it starts by fixing our eyes back on God by learning His story, and this will take work. Um, yeah you know, I, I, we will not be able to preach you enough sermons to get you comfortable talking about this story, like you'll have to pursue it on your own and that, you know, there's there's no way around that. Um, there are a number of books. Uh, if you want recommendations, I'd be happy to recommend them to you. But there's also just scripture. And you all have that. If you don't, we'd love to get you a copy of it. Um, and that's kind of our starting point. We have to fix our eyes on God. We have to remind ourselves of his goodness, of this plan of provision that he set in place. Um, we have to believe in scripture if we want other folks to follow the God of scripture. Um, and we have to be able to tell people about that. And we have to continually remind ourselves that God is good because Satan will not remind you of that. He will at every step question God's goodness and God's provision. And isn't this a little too hard? And aren't you being just a little too mean right now? And some of those questions are good. Sometimes we are being too mean. Um, and we need to find ways of presenting um, Presenting truth with grace, um, again, with his full knowledge that we are broken ourselves. But we need, we need to remind people that God delights in them, that he wants what's best for them, and we need to own that. Um, and, you know, we can remind people of creation, but I think the most poignant, the most, um, where God shouts his grace the loudest is in the cross. And we need to to take people and remind them that Christ suffered for their sin and for our sin and that he didn't have to do any of that. He could have ignored us. He could have just destroyed us. But he humbled himself lower than we can imagine to become human and join in our suffering, join in our temptations. And then he died on the cross for our sins. With God, with that image of God uh, fixed in our mind, we can begin to put off sin and we have, to, we have to take this step seriously, um, starting with our own sin. We need to be confe- confessing, repenting, and turning away. Whether it be pornography, masturbation, fornication, adultery, homosexuality, bestiality. These sins are us, and we need to own that, and we need to put them to death. Um, now, putting to death, although it sounds like a, a singular action, for many of us will not be a singular action. Um, sometimes God frees us, and s- sometimes He doesn't. Sometimes, like Paul, there's a thorn in our flesh that we walk with through the rest of our lives. And for that reason, we shouldn't be putting heterosexuality or going straight as like the ideal for people, because they may never get there. Um, you know, we may never get there. The ultimate goal is Christ, and all of us are going to continue to struggle up until the day that we are joined with Christ. In the putting to death process, we need to be willing to take drastic steps. Scripture talks about, well, as Jesus talks about, you know, cutting your eye out if you know it causes you to lust, and by that, you know, he, he meant you need to be willing to take drastic steps. Drastic steps in our age might be getting rid of the things we think of as normative. Maybe your star- smartphone has too many pictures on it, or too much access to the Internet. Maybe your computer needs to go. You know, if you know, Those seem like important things to us, um, but they're not as important as your eternity. Um, maybe your TV needs to go. Maybe you need to change the kind of programs you watch. You need to set limits on what kind of rating you allow yourself to watch um, and in general, we need to make it easier to talk about struggles um, and struggles this doesn't have to you don't have to confess all of your sins in front of everyone as you know corporate confession um but you should be confessing, whether it's to your spouse or to close friends. Like we all have sins, and we are all in need of that cleansing process of confession um, and accountability. And we will never be able to speak to a to a culture that values authenticity until we develop that authenticity ourselves. Until we put aside a lot of the hypocrisy that we've been living in, and and yeah, take on the mantle that Christ has called us to. And this, this openness is not just an openness for openness sake. It's not a coming out of the closet so you can be known and validated. Um, it's a recognition that I'm broken and you're broken and we all need to move together towards Christ. There is this redemptive projection towards Christian openness and confession. Um, if we don't struggle against our sin, then we remain dead in it. And we have no claim on Christ. The final step, and it takes place even as we are putting off sin, but is to put on Christ. Um, And we do that, I think, in this arena in the context of the church and within marriage. Um, Those are two institutions that God has given us to to speak to the world around us. And you don't have to be married to speak to the worthiness of God in sexuality. Um, I think in some ways the testimony... Of a single person who is willing to put aside sexual desires for the sake of Christ and for the pursuit of Christ and for the, the building of his kingdom is more powerful than the, the testimony of the married person. Um, because it's taking something that the world values so highly and saying God is better. Um, and along those lines, we need, to, we need to figure out ways of honoring singleness. You know, Leon, Leon spoke to this. Um, but we, we don't really, I, I think we don't really remember the value of singles in the history of the church. Men like Paul, men like Elijah, you know, you know, great patriarchs of the faith were single. And their singleness allowed them to devote themselves to the work of Christ. They could go places and do things that married folks couldn't do. Um, and Paul points that out explicitly. Um, we have more modern examples. Um, I think of David Brainerd. Um, there's a guy named John Morant who was around David Brainerd's time, an African-American who also was a missionary to the Indians, um, Amy Carmichael, Samuel Morris. Um, these folks, again, went places and did things that married folks couldn't and accomplished great things for God. And their testimonies live on and inspire missionaries to this day. Um, and a m- more personal example a guy that um went to church with uh he actually struggled with same sex attraction and and that i mean he was a a great guy very um very charismatic and you know was very you know people loved him he's the kind of guy that you know women would have loved to marry um but he did not you know, he did not have that attraction. He struggled against same-sex attraction and that, in many ways, I think, freed him up to be single. And he used that singleness to go to China, to go to places in Eastern Europe um, and preach the gospel. Um, he also had this um, gift for languages where he could learn a language, like, in a couple weeks. And was just, it has been used in amazing ways um, through, through this struggle. And in many ways, the struggle provided the opportunity. Um, So I think we need to, we need to have that be part of the narrative. We need to be reminding folks of their unique positioning, whether married or single in the church, and how that special gifting allows, you know, you access to certain situations. I mean, on the other hand, there are situations that married folks will come into that single folks won't. Um, And we need to take advantage of those. And we need, to be working together. There needs to be more cohesion within the church and support within the church. You know, families should be opening their doors to our singles. Like, it should not be you know, the singles group over here and uh, all the married people in their houses because they have too many kids to leave. Um, (laughs) And then the young married people over here that don't have kids yet. Um, And I think one of the challenges as part of that that I want to leave you with, like, you know, we're in this time this summer where we are not doing, like, the discipleship meeting times, the small group times. This is the perfect opportunity for fellowship, um, which is part of Frey. And, you know, we should be taking advantage of that. And I just want to, you know, we're halfway through the summer just check in. Are we taking advantage of that? Are we connecting with each other? Are we building up this community? Um, one of the things that was talked about in Harris's book is this idea that we are a cognitive and moral minority that wasn't always the case as a church, but we are in these days, and you know minorities need to stick together and need to develop their story and their cohesiveness um, while reaching the world. But one of the one of the quickest ways to lose your way as a minority is to not have this kind of cultural narrative um, and not be retelling it to the next generation. So we need we need to be doing that to maintain kind of the cultural continuity of Christ in the world. Um, and as we fellowship, we're going to no doubt meet people that we don't like and we don't agree with. And that'll happen in the church. That'll happen outside the church. And again, we need to have, conver- we need to have conversations with people. Um, one of the, again, going back to like the Facebook, Twitter phenomenon, like I think part of that instantaneous feedback thing, you know, our we go from like zero to hate really fast. And we need to, st- we need to stop. <laughs> we need to be able to sit so- with someone that we disagree with for two hours, and still leave liking each other at the end of the, the day. Um, and that takes that takes work. That takes biting your tongue. That takes listening. Um, things that I'm sure we could all get better at. And the la- the last thing that I I think we need to keep in mind is just to continue to develop godly leadership within the church. Leadership that is both founded in grace and truth. And we need to find ways of training up that leadership. We need to find ways of supporting that leadership while, it's, while it is actively leading, as well as keeping it accountable while it's actively leading. Because um, those kind of mechanisms haven't been in place in the church, and that's led to devastation. Um, so in, in closing, just family, please hear me, like, I am broken, I am sinful, I have struggled with and against sexual sin for as long as I can remember. Um, Maybe you have too. maybe your sin is somewhere else. Um, But the point is, we are all broken, and we all deserve death, and we have this glorious promise, this glorious gift from God, and if you haven't... um, Taken advantage of that gift yet? I encourage you to do so. If you have, and have stumbled, and you need to be picked back up, you know today let that be the day. Um, I would love to talk to you. I know Leon would love to talk to you. There's other elders that would um, see Alex and Matthew here, um, but really any of the members here would. And this, you know, we want to walk alongside you whether you are a member or not a member. Um, if this is your first time, we, you know, we want to be family to you. Um, so yeah, please, please take advantage of the body around you. And as we move forward, please share the story with others. You know, grow in the story yourself, grow in your comfort of telling it, but share it. Um, and it's essentially the the story of the gospel. It's not just a story of human sexuality, but it's a story of something better and, We have that to offer. Um, Let's close in prayer. Lord God, you are good. Lord, would you, yeah, would you make that real to us, Lord? Would you meet our emotions, Lord, and meet our intellect, Lord, Lord? Allow us to touch the emotions and intellects around us, Lord. But Lord, just yeah, I just pray for a, a sense of peace and joy and delight in you. And I pray that, yeah, that we would know you, Lord, at our core as the great treasure, the great reward in life. And Lord, that we would yeah, just be overflowing with thanks and with a desire to let others in on that on that mystery.
0: Amen.